Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. This morning we are in Psalm 51. Please turn there with me. Psalm 51. If you're new here, we are going through the Psalms for the summer season. And the theme of it is not just to study the Psalms, but to think about one of the primary writers of the Psalms, which is David. And we all admire David's life, this this amazing shepherd turned uh, minstrel in Saul's palace, turned commander of his troops, turned king of Judah, and eventually king of all of Israel. And so we look at this guy and we think he had a heart after God, God's own heart, and we want to be like him, but he had a very dark passage in his life. And then we look at that and oftentimes, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. And so people avoid Psalm 51, but I'm going to invite you into Psalm 51 uh, because it's really a story about you. It's not a story about David. It's a story about you. It's a story about God's invitation for you to discover his full forgiveness and his full mercy, not just for David, but for you. So we've studied Psalm 103. That was intentional so that you would understand the grandeur of God's nature, that he's absolutely wonderful. And whatever you think about God, that he's evil, he's bad, he's capricious, Uh, all these things that people tend to think he should have been here, he should have done this, to go back and read Psalm 103 and realize, okay, that's my issue. God is absolutely wonderful. Secondly, we studied about thirst last week, Psalm 63. Our thirst for him. It's, It's so imperative that not only we discover God's movement towards us, but we have a decision to make too, and that is to open up the tap and allow our thirst to be open towards him. And so now we come to this psalm, Psalm 51. And uh, I often young, uh, direct young bucks to this psalm. By young bucks, I mean someone who's just come to the Lord. They're excited for the Lord. They just feel like they could ta- tackle anything. They're conquerors. And uh, maybe they even think they can take on the devil himself. And I'll ask them to read this psalm, and I'll study it with them together. Because we often can be sons of thunder. Like, you remember the sons of thunder that walked with Jesus? And the Samaritans didn't accept Jesus. And they said, you want us to just call down fire from heaven right now? And Jesus kind of just said, at ease. (laughs) But you come all the way to the end of the gospel and you read Peter. He wasn't one of the sons of thunder, but he may as well been, where he has a brokenness in his life because he has discovered his own sin and his own need for mercy. And so that's my prayer today, that that you and I would discover the grandeur of God's love for you and surrender in faith to that great love. Join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for this privilege to read this great, great psalm. And Lord, here today, we want to become David's. We want to more 
deeply understand not only your love, but the depth of our own sin, the depth of our own need for you. And as these two things come together, that our lives would be changed. And our prayer is in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Psalm 51, you can follow along as I read it. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you... Sorry, that's a different memorized translation. Uh, So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb, and you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David begins this great psalm with a plea of mercy, a plea for forgiveness, and he hasn't a leg to stand on. The first two verses are kind of an introductory to the rest of the psalm, and it's all about mercy. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So this is the fourth of seven psalms, I've given them to you in your notes, that the psalms have that are penitential, where there's a psalm about repenting and asking for forgiveness. And this is the fourth and perhaps the greatest, because it comes on the heels of the story of David with Bathsheba, and David's 
murder of her husband, Uriah. So the story goes like this, and I think most of us know it. It's a story that you think, wow, you're actually telling that story in church because it's just so horrendous. So David, it tells us in 2 Samuel, didn't go out to war that spring when the kings normally go out to war and battle. David is now this seasoned statesman. He's sitting back on his laurels as a king, and he's allowing Joab, his commander, to go out and do the dirty work for him. And Joab has the, the Israelite army up against Ramah. And if you wonder where Ramah is, it's modern-day Amman, Jordan, the capital of Jordan, which is not a great distance. You can travel it in one day, go down from Jerusalem, cross the River Jordan just north of the Dead Sea, and go up the other side. It's a high desert. And if you travel some 12, 15 miles, you'll come to Amman, or as it was called in those days, Ramah. And so in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, we have the rest of the story. So David didn't go out, and he's just taking a little walk on his, the porch of his palace when he sees a woman, no doubt at a distance, bathing. I bring that out because the text doesn't. He's in a palace. He doesn't have people just butt up right against him where it was easy to see someone else bathing. He had to work hard to see someone off in the distance bathing, and her name was Bathsheba. So he sends, I want you to hear the details of his sin. It's horrendous. He sends his men to do his bidding. So they're accomplices to the sin. This is, this is a me too sin uh, of, of a big, uh, mag magnificent moment where David chooses his employees to be a part of the crime. And he sends them out to find out who this is. They come back and say, this is Bathsheba. This is Uriah the Hittite's wife. End of discussion. It should have been. He sends them back to fetch her. She comes, and in the moment, he's the king. He's all powerful. Uh, and we don't know what her relationship was with Uriah the Hittite, but it's a time where women have very little rights at all. And in that moment, uh, David overpowers her. She's overcome, and uh, they have relations that night. She becomes pregnant. Oive, the plot thickens. David finds out about it. She sends word to him, and David says, no problem, take care of it. He sends a message to Joab, who's at the battlefront battling Ramah, the city I told you about, and he says, send me Uriah home. David's never taken any interest in this individual soldier who's now brought back to the palace David, uh, no doubt, pours him a glass of wine. How's it going? Is it, how's the, everything on the battlefield? Well, why don't you just go home and relax? What's he doing? He's covering up his tracks. Uh, Uriah's going to have relations with her. He won't know it's David's child. All will be good. Only Uriah is more faithful than David. 
Uriah sleeps on the doorstep of the palace, and David finds out about it the next day. You never went home. And his answer is, how could I go home when my men are at the battlefield? My men are giving their lives for this, and how could I go home and enjoy my wife, the pleasures of my house? David realizes, wow, this is going to be more difficult than I thought. Takes another run at it. He gets Uriah drunk that night, thinking now he'll just swagger on home, stagger on home, and have relations with Bathsheba. Doesn't do it. Even in his drunkenness, he's loyal, he's obedient, he's faithful. So David ups it a big notch, and he sends Uriah back to the battle line carrying a note that is is his death sentence, and he doesn't know it. And the death sentence reads, in the height of the battle, put Uriah close to the city walls. This is something David had taught his men to never do because the archers in the city wall can easily strike the men that get too close to the wall. And then when Uriah is close to the wall, back away from him. And Joab realizes that this is intentional murder. And it happens. Word comes back from Joab to David. Your command is fulfilled. And now Bathsheba mourns the death of her husband And at the end of the mourning period of a month, David takes her in as his wife. She, pregnant with David's child, uh, gives birth. And at this time, Nathan arrives, Nathan the prophet, to say, God saw it all. You thought he didn't see it. He, you thought he didn't see your imagination. He, you thought he didn't see you walking on the palace patio. You thought he didn't see you when you sent messengers back and forth. You thought he didn't see you when you had relations with Bathsheba. You thought he didn't see it when you murdered Uriah. He saw it all. And his judgment upon you, this child is going to die. And your, your own family is going to be in consternation, which is what happens uh, with Absalom and and the traitorship and uh, the, the coup that happens by his own son later on in his life. But Nathan says, God has already forgiven you. Wow. What a day in the life of the palace of Jerusalem. So David, out of this great Uh, agony, this great crime, he pens this psalm. And now you see the grandeur of the psalm. What you're going to see here is the Grand Canyon in terms of sin and depravity, but you're also going to see in the erosion of the Grand Canyon the beautiful colors of God's mercy and grace. And my hope is that it'll be applied to you and not just to David. So as we read these opening verses, the thing that stands out is the the 
the initial request, have mercy. Do you know what the word mercy means? I used to use that. There was a a thing that we would use when we were kids. I grew up in a neighborhood of 17 guys, and there was fistfights quite a bit. And the the word was uncle. Say uncle. My brother would be plummeting me. And, and I would just be taking it and, and not give him the satisfaction. But I had to say either uncle or mercy. Mercy is a word that annihilates deserving. It annihilates earning anything. You and I, we live in a world where we go everywhere and there's a consumer transaction, Right? whether your dollar bills or your credit card or your phone or something is purchasing something. So it's hard for us to imagine a word that doesn't have some agreement of commerce. But mercy is that word, completely undeserved. It's love, but it's completely undeserved, contrary to what we do deserve and is founded solely in the text on God's unfailing love, according to your unfailing love. We have no word in English for this word here. You've heard me mention it. It's the prized word of the Old Testament, chesed, which means covenant, loyal, committed love. It's what you and I would hope we have in marriage, that it's not just excited love, it's not just romantic love, it's not a love that you can fall out of. You cannot wake up one day and say, I fell out of love. That's only to say, I stopped romantically loving you. Committed love lasts forever through the ups and the downs. And so David says, I want mercy But it's all based on you, God. Nothing on my part. There's nothing I bring to the table. I come as a jolly beggar with nothing in my pockets to purchase your love. Your mercy has to be based on you, God. We see a picture of this in the book of Hosea, where Hosea is asked to... Uh, To marry a woman, she's a prostitute. She goes back to her prostitution. Hosea's asked by God to go find her, bring her back. Happens again, go find her and bring her back. And God says, this is how Israel has been to me, unfaithful, but this is how I am towards her. I have committed love. And so David is asking for mercy based on God alone. And then he uses another word, according to your great compassion. And this word is not just an idea, it's an emotion. Compassion is largely the love of a mother. It's that warm love that would describe the love of a mother. And David is asking for that from God towards him. And the two things he wants here He describes, it's all the same thing, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity. The third is, and cleanse me from my sin. First of all, I want you to see the three scandalous terms that he uses to describe his own sin. 
transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Nobody talks about this anymore. If you write a book called Sin, it's not going to be a bestseller in America. Write a book about my shadow side, my somewhat shameful aspect of me, because it just feels so judgmental. But nobody's judging you. I hope you know that. I'm not up here judging you. I'm, I'm inviting all of us to become aware of our sin. Whether we believe in the word as a culture is irrelevant. It's still a reality. Ooh, Mark, that's tweetable. <laughs> I agree with you, Mark. That, that was a good insight. All right, let's go on. So transgression, what is a transgression? These are all synonyms for the same thing. A transgression is a willful, rebellious act. Any Hebrew reader would understand this word. The second word, iniquity, it comes from the root of a plant that's twisted. It didn't grow straight. So iniquity is crookedness. And then the word sin, this is the one that's used the most in the Old Testament, to miss the mark. You're aiming for the bullseye, and you miss the mark of what God had for you and me. So he uses these terms collectively to describe his condition, not hiding his shadow side. But then this is matched by the three terms he's asking for. One is blot out my transgressions. I love this word. This word was found in the Hammurabi text, which is a, a, a extant piece of literature outside of the Bible. But it gives us a sense of that whole Middle Eastern world at the time of the writing of the Old Testament. And this word is actually used, and it's used for scraping letters off a text. So if you can imagine, not just erasing, not just whitewashing, you remember whiting out? Remember when we used to do that before computers? You know, I remember a typewriter in my undergraduate work and and, uh, whiting out everything because I just kept making mistakes. This is better than whiteout. This is actually scraping the, the words and the letters off the page onto the ground. That's what this word is asking for, blot out. The second word is used of washing garments. And the, the root of it literally is to beat. Because if you've been to the developing world, you'll often see people by a river not just washing their clothes, but beating the dirt out of their clothes. So that's this term. And then the third term is just what you did this morning. It's a shower. It's, it's a bath. And so all these three terms together, I love it because it's not just an idea. Forgiveness is an idea. These are a picture. They're a feeling. David is using graphic word terms, uh, word pictures to describe what he's wanting. As a kid, I spent quite a bit of time in detention. Uh, I don't know why. It must have been something wrong with the teachers. 
But um, I would be asked to stay for a while in the classroom, and I remember dozens of times seeing the janitor come in, and he would take the chalkboard with this amazing, the teachers all had dirty erasers that just kind of made it more chalky, but the, the janitor, the custodian would come in, and I just watched this, how did he do this? He had some kind of a chamois or something that was attached to the eraser. That's the picture of what you want. Think of it. All the things you shoulda, coulda, all the things you, you did in rebellion, all the things you thought of, all the motives, all the imaginations, all of it erased out of God's mercy for you. So right out of the gate, this intro, what I want us to understand is this is an invitation for you. This is not just about Dave. This is an invitation, and there is no other door. <laughs> it's this humbling unattractive door of you realizing you're bankrupt and you need some mercy like David. Peter is a man of uh, the New Testament that I think depicts this quite well. So when someone decides to follow Jesus like Peter did, they may be a little bit like you. When I accepted Christ, I was 2 a.m. in the morning and I thought, well, I need to do this. I was looking for meaning. I actually wasn't looking for forgiveness. I was looking for meaning. It was a year later that I became aware of the filth of my sin. And I sobbed and I sobbed. And that's, I think, a journey for all of us. We, we come into church and we think, well, I, I know I've done some bad things, but I see Mabel over there and I know she, what she's done. If God forgives her, then God should forgive me. And I see that guy, that cheat. He cheated me out of some real estate deal, and, and he's in church, so God must accept me. And we kind of have this bartering that comes in to our minds. That I can't be that bad. And we're only thinking of the things we've done. So I haven't pillaged any villages I haven't raped anybody. I haven't murdered anybody. So I must not be that bad, right? But I'm unaware, because of that, I'm unaware of God's mercy for me. Do you, do you follow? Comprende? So Peter was kind of this guy. You know, he's at the, at the end where Peter, Peter is hearing from Jesus, you're all going to run away, you're all going to deny me, and Peter says, not me, I'm your guy, I'm the guy that's going to always be there for you, and Jesus says, is that true? You're going to deny me three times, and Peter still thinks it can't happen, and it's only when he hears his own words in a Galilean dialect come out of his mouth where he's cursing and denying his knowledge of the one he proclaims to love, that he sees the depth of his sin. And those are moments for you and I. For some of us, they just kind of accumulate. For some of us, we have this big aha moment where we see ourselves in a moment of stupidity in sin. And now we are getting somewhere. 
It's not that you become a sinner. It's that you have been and are a sinner. And now we discover his mercy. So we go on into the psalm, and David unpacks the depth of his sin. He says, for I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom. So he comes to grips with not only his sin, but the depth of his depravity. I love how it begins, for I know my transgression. This is the hardest thing to bring a sinner to admit, to own my own stuff. Think about it. You get in an argument with your spouse, and what do you do? You blame, you deny, you, you displace. Uh, you, you, you turn it back on that, well, what, how about you? Are you so wonderful? Are you so nice? We have all these defense mechanisms. Anna Freud documented the, 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 the bulk of them, some eight or 10 mechanisms, and we all know them really well. We're like illusionists. Look over there. Look over there. And it was me. And, and, and the whole point, just like in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, we can't own our stuff. But the moment that I own my own stuff, it's like a grain of sand passing through the hourglass into the other side. Ownership, without denying, is key. And then realizing that this all sin points back to one major sin, and it's against God. When it says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil, David isn't denying the, the social ramifications that he committed against Uriah, against Israel as a nation, against his own family and children, etc. All of that is sin, but it all culminates to one major sin. God, I knew what was right, and I did wrong. Ultimately, it was against you. Ultimately, it was flipping you off because I was going to have my own way, do my own thing because I know best. And he says, you are right in your verdict, justified when you judge. I deserve everything I get out of this. And then he says, you know, this actually isn't new. <laughs> I've been sinful from birth. What wonderful freedom comes from ownership. Wonderful freedom to admit your sin, to admit your fallibility, rather than defending, but also to realize there's an interesting verse here I want you to notice at the end in verse 6. He says, Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom. Notice the contradiction. I was, I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me, so I was sinful at birth, but also when I was conceived, there was this sense of you desiring faithfulness and giving me wisdom, and that's the human contradiction. I know I shouldn't, and I've always known I shouldn't, 
but I did. It's knowing what is right and doing what is wrong. And David says, that's my dilemma. So the assessment in this section is that I'm a sinner through and through far more than I know. Whoa, what freedom! (laughs) What if you ended your spousal argument that way? What did you do that for? You were an idiot! And you just say, far more than you know. (laughs) Just empties all the bullets out of their gun. Why is it so hard to own my own stuff? Because when I don't own it, it's like quicksand. Anybody ever been in quicksand? I've never met anybody. I always used to see quicksand in these westerns. And I wondered, like, where do they, you know, they, is it like a, a sand trap in a golf game? You just sink into the sand? Will I be walking through my neighborhood and just suddenly sinking? Where does quicksand exist? But I would always see these cowboys sinking into the quicksand. And the more they moved, the worse it got until someone threw them a line or threw them a branch or something that they could grab onto. Sin is that way. The more you move and try to explain and get out of it, the worse it gets. And God comes to you, and he starts with the boulders. It's the real obvious thing. You should not have burned that village. Big sin. Big boulders. But then he moves on to the smaller rocks. And then he moves on to the river rocks. And there are hundreds of those. And then he moves on to the pebbles. And there are thousands of them. And then he moves on to the grains of sand. And they're all arrows pointing to you. Why would we deny our sin and our need for mercy? So now we come to the best part, the anatomy of forgiveness and renewal. So he says, cleanse me. I want you to notice the, the, the requests that are in the imperative mood here and how they just stack up. Cleanse me, wash me, let me hear, let the bones hide your face, blot out, create in me, renew, do not cast me away, take, or take your Holy Spirit from me, restore, grant me. All of these requests are pictures of what David wants, and you could categorize them into two categories, forgiveness and spiritual renewal. So first of all, forgiveness. Cleanse me is a word you want to know. Do you want to know what the literal is of this word? Unsin me. How cool is that? Could you unsin me? It's actually the word sin in reverse. Unsin me. Wash me. It's the same word we talked about in verse 2 of washing clothes. And then he uses this fabulous description, cleanse me whiter than snow. Folks, snow doesn't happen all the time in Israel. Once every blue moon, annually on Mount Hermon, they knew what brilliant snow looked like. 
If you're from the East Coast or the Midwest or San Bernardino Mountains, you know what the first snow looks like. But you also know what April snow looks like. It's this gray, slushy, ugly thing that's full of dirt and salt, and you just wish it would go away. But the first snow is so sharply contrasted by the ground and the green that it stands out. And that's how God pictures you. That's what forgiveness looks like. Then he says there's to be holistic rejoicing. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Just as your sin is holistic, it's like the ecosystem. You cannot just sin against God. Your sin against God is against yourself. It's against others. It's against the planet. It's against society. It's a cancer. But, But the reverse is equally holistic, where when you get right with God, it feels right in your body. It really does. The stress, everything goes away because you're right. Hide your face. Don't scrutinize my sin anymore. Just look away. And then this wonderful word, which, which is blot out, to wipe the letters off the page. Then he asks for renewal because he realizes, and this is you, my friend, we are vulnerable for the same sin. Did you know? Have you discovered your Achilles heel? If, if you're a liar, for example, and that's your, uh, your tendency is to lie, then your tendency is not to do other sins. Or if your, your tendency is to be greedy or coveting, your tendency is not to do these other sins. Every one of us are not equally vulnerable to every single sin. We have spiritual Achilles heels where we're vulnerable. You with me? I think you are. I'm getting, feeling like it's getting real quiet right now. <laughs> so what do we do? We ask for renewal and listen to the words, create in me a pure heart. The second create. I know the first creation where you spoke uh, this world out of nothing into existence, create a second creation and let it be me with a new heart, which means a new will, a new perception, a new thinking. Give me a steadfast spirit. Make me unwavering, consistent, loyal in my commitment to you. I need help. And don't reject me. Don't banish me from your Holy Spirit. Instead, fill me. Restore the joy that I once had about your salvation. Have you ever seen a Christian lose their joy? Hello? I think we have. That might be you. It might be me. How do we... Yeah, we even ask God to restore the joy I once had about God loving me and saving me. Why should it fall away? Why should your joy pass away? I've told you the story of a music professor when I first went to transfer to a Christian college and I was just like this guy that was just all excited about Jesus. I'd known him for eight months and uh, he asked me if I was a new Christian. I said, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And he nodded with full sobriety. I thought so. I was so ticked. I said, what's that supposed to mean? The more you know Jesus, the less excited you are about him? That doesn't make any sense if he's the son of God. So restore that joy and then grant me, here's the big one, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me in my walk with you. This enthusiastic volunteerism to say yes. If you want to know the secret of renewal in your Christian life, it's the word yes. Do this, Mark. Yes. Do this, Mark. Yes. Uh, it, it keeps your walk alive, and he's asking for this willing spirit to sustain him. So if you ask me, what is the cost of this grand forgiveness and the cost of this grand renewal? The answer is clear. You can't afford it. It's the cross. It's the darling of heaven that crossed the infinite gap from heaven to earth. It's, it's Jesus who bent his blood for you. You can't afford it. It's pure mercy if God answers this prayer. So David concludes and says, out of this mercy, out of this forgiveness, I'm going to become a teacher and a worshiper. I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. He asks again for forgiveness about the murder. And then he says, open my lips, Lord. And he asks to become a worshiper that I may declare your praise. And then he talks about worship. He says, you don't delight in sacrifices. By the way, Psalm 50, right before this, talks about the same thing. That God isn't hungry. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's not impressed. What he's impressed in those days when a worshiper combined his heart with the animal sacrifice. Then that is worship in the same way in our worship. If you worship with one hand up, two hands up, or no hands up, God is not impressed. What grabs God's heart is when your heart is connected to your lips, and then it's worship. It's true worship. Now, please don't say, well, I don't feel it today, so I'm, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I'm not going to even sing. It's good for you to step out of the boat and go ahead and force your heart to sing out of will. But the point is when, when we combine our heart with our words or as we took the offering, our giving, When our heart is combined with it, it becomes true worship. Jesus describes that in John chapter 4. And then he prays for the prospering of Zion, the prospering of Jerusalem. And he says, and then I'll bring whole sacrifices unto you. Once you realize that, that and I realize that it's a broken spirit and a contrite heart, you will not despise. Wow. Brokenness. You remember the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel? And he's this young buck, and he's, you want to wrestle? Then let's wrestle. And all night long, he's wrestling what turns out to be the angel of the Lord. 
And he thinks he's winning. It says in the passage, he's winning. But we realize at the end that the angel of the Lord is letting him win to keep the match going on. But at the end of the match, the angel says, let me go. It's almost morning. And now Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Who says that in a wrestling match? Have you seen that in a cage fight? No, he's recognizing that this person is the person that can bring blessing to me and is greater than me. But the angel touches his hip so that his hip goes out of socket. And he comes out of the tent the next morning having, quote, unquote, won. (laughs) And he's limping. And they say, hey, Jacob, what's up? He says, don't call me Jacob. My name is now Israel. I've been branded. I've been changed. I've wrestled with God himself, and I'm still alive. And he's a broken man from that point on. There's all kinds of young people that come to God quasi sort of, but there's a part in our journey where we have to be broken. And brokenness, my friend, is two things. It's staring in the mirror. Hello, it's looking at you for who you ain't, not all the great things that you are. Throw your resume away. Show your, throw your Vita away of, God, look at this, 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 this. And look past it. It's not my mother, it's not my brother, but it's me, O oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. But it's not just looking at yourself. More importantly, it's looking into this deep blue pool of mercy, receiving the mercy of God that is so much deeper and vaster than your own sin. I mentioned Peter earlier. There's another verse regarding Peter that says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And listen to this. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So when you receive the mercy of God, then now you're deputized deputized to now Show that mercy to others. Teach other people about the great forgiveness that you have found in Jesus Christ. There's a story in Luke chapter 7 about a woman that washes Jesus' head and his feet with her hair. It's not the story of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, that you find at the end of John. This is a different woman, and it's early on in Jesus' journey. This woman barges into a scene that's all men. Can you picture this? And it's at a Pharisee's house. His name is Simon. And the heading of the story is, the Pharisees were upset with Jesus because he was hanging out with sinners. That's you. You're in the Bible. You're in this story. Jesus is hanging out with you. And the religious types who have not seen, experienced the mercy of God 
are wondering about this. Why is Jesus hanging around these people? And so Jesus goes over to Simon's house for dinner. Simon does two things contrary to Jewish protocol. He purposefully does not kiss Jesus at the door, Middle Eastern custom, relax, not on the lips. Secondly, he doesn't anoint his head with perfumed oil, which you would do for every guest, say welcome. And then the third thing is he he doesn't wash his feet. Why? Because there's other Pharisees there, and he doesn't want to be judged, and he doesn't want to look to be an accomplice of Jesus hanging out with sinners. He just kind of doesn't know what to do with this issue. And then this woman barges into the house, and it says of the woman that she had a sinful past. And we're left to just let our imagination go. It wouldn't just be some small, lightweight stuff because the whole community knew that this was a sinful woman. But she has met the mercy of Jesus, and so she begins with her own hair, her best for his worst, washing his feet. Now, what is Simon doing? Ugh. Oy vey, what's going on? This should not be happening. This is the very thing I talked about. And Jesus reads Simon's mind. Oh, my gosh. He says, tell me, Simon, I know what you're thinking about this sinful woman. When I came into your house, you didn't kiss me. You didn't give me oil. You didn't wash my feet. But this woman has not stopped washing my feet since she got into the room. There were two people, Simon, who owed money to a wealthy man. One who owed a lot of money and one who owed a minimal amount of money. The rich man forgave them both. Which of the two loved the man the most. And Simon, being an expert in algebra, said, I assume the man who is forgiven the most. And Jesus says in the Greek, bingo. He who is forgiven much loves much. Psalm 51, it's not about David, it's about you. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.